Welcome to Truth Matters Church and our expository study through Revelation. By applying 10 simple rules of engagement as a foundation for interpreting this book of prophecy, we're studying each verse as we would any other in the Bible. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches, and today we look at Sardis and Christ's warning that they appeared to be alive but were dead. Beginning with some historical context, let's explore this statement using Scripture with Scripture and see what the Lord will reveal to us. If you'd like to catch up on previous messages from this study, visit us at truthmatterschurch.org. And consider attending our small study every Friday night in person or on Zoom. And now, leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cateroja. We are now on the fifth letter of the seven churches, and that is to the church in Sardis. And as a reminder of where we are on the map, as you can see here, the seven churches are all in the same kind of region or vicinity in what is known back then as Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. But as you can see, they're fairly close in proximity. And off the coast there is Patmos, where John got this great vision. But as you can kind of see, it's all on that part of the world is where this context of this letter is given. So are you guys ready to start talking about Sardis? So let's start talking about Sardis. Um, there, there are some interesting finds, I would think. Uh, So what we'll do is we'll look to Scripture first, see what we can find there. We will then look to history and try to give us some historical context so that we can have an idea what was going on and what was the culture, you know, what was the environment, what, what, what was going on at around the time. The believers were given this letter, or it was at least read to them and distributed. So as far as the Scripture goes, and this, and this is something that was mentioned before, out of the seven churches, four of the seven churches, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, which is what we're studying, Philadelphia, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture, but just here in the book of Revelation. So only Ephesus, Thyatira, and Laodicea at least are mentioned, at least their cities are mentioned. So all seven churches are in ancient Asia Minor, So as far as Scripture goes, because it's not mentioned anywhere else outside of Revelation, um, all we can do is look for clues. And just like Smyrna and Pergamum, which we've covered already, if you were to ask me, okay, how did the church in Sardis come to be? These are four good, viable options. It could have been from the preaching of the Apostle Peter, um, at the, especially at the beginning of the, his great sermon that Pentecost, A.D. 30, they could have been established through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul did a lot of missionary journeys. He spent a lot of time in Ephesus, which isn't too far from Sardis. So they could have been a byproduct of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, believers may have scattered and settled there due to the narrow persecution, you know, leading up to the persecution under Nero. And last but not least, one possibility of how the church in Sardis got established could have been from the preaching of the very own beloved, the Apostle John, who is writing uh, this book. So Scripture doesn't really give us much other than they were as part of Asia Minor and they could have been or established there from those four different options. Now, as far as history, Sardis. 
Um, it is currently modern day, hope I say this right, Sart Mustafa, which is a Manisa province in western Turkey. And Sardis was the capital. How many of us have heard of the Lydian kingdom? Just the word, you know, Lydian kingdom. Have you heard of the Lydian kingdom? Well, when you at least look to history, um, and they had a fairly lengthy reign in, in history. They reigned from about 1180 to 547 BC. We're talking about 600 years plus. This Lydian kingdom was the, you know, or at least they were in power over, you know, this region, including Sardis. And in the New Testament, these are just some brownie points. Um, if you're like, who are the Lydians? Um, they would be the people of Lud, L-U-D, in First Chronicles chapter 1. So when you, if you were to read First Chronicles and you see the people of Lud, that would be the Lydians. And the Lydians also occupied and reigned over ancient, ancient Sardis. And before the Lydian Empire, Sardis was occupied. How many of us have heard of the Hittites? The Hittites. Well, at least there was Hittites in the most ancient of Sardis. And then when the Lydian Empire came to be, they ruled the Hittites. Um, and the Lydian Empire was ultimately conquered by the Persians you know, at around in the middle of 6th century B.C., Uh, Some interesting things about Sardis. You see this kind of picture here on the right? This was a gymnasium. I think for those of us here on the West and what we know of gymnasium, you think of gymnasium, maybe a recreation center where you might play some sports, maybe basketball, volleyball, or any other kind of indoor activity. uh, The ancient gymnasium in Sardis, it's not quite like the gymnasium as we know it today. Um, you know, back then, for the most part, when I'm gathering what was this gymnasium, it was their university. Um, it, for the most part, had students. Um, so it was a, their, at the time, their university, and there was kind of different sections within this gymnasium. But there was one section in particular that I want to call out, and it was, there was a, what was called the Marble Court. Um, And let me read this excerpt here. This three-story colonnaded courtyard was dedicated to the cult of the Roman emperor, believed to be the guardian of of the truth, being taught and exemplified in his life. All learning was devoted to him. Many niches in the wall served as pediments for statues. In the main apse was a statue of the emperor who was honored with sacrifices and ceremonies during the educational process. So in other words, as part of their curriculum, there was this acknowledgement and tribute to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. And even as part of their kind of curriculum, uh, the emperor would be honored with sacrifices and ceremonies during the educational process. So could you imagine going to school, and whoever is, the, whoever is the Caesar, you're like, okay, all right, guys, you know, you know, here in the West, we might do the Pledge of Allegiance or something, but instead of Pledge of Allegiance, how about hailing Caesar and offering up a sacrifice and paying homage to Caesar? Well, this is what was part of the activities that was going on in this ancient gymnasium in Sardis to kind of give us an idea, and we won't get into the other sections there. But in addition to the gymnasium, um, it had a theater 
And this one was, what I've seen so far, is one of the bigger ones, bigger than Ephesus. Um, they had about a 20,000 capacity, a stadium, which is about 12,000 capacity, and an aqueduct. Now, as far as the theater, and I'm like, whoa, whoa what were, what were, when they would go to, look, we see this picture on the right, imagine 20,000 people in this kind of theater. What would, what would be going on in ancient Sardis? And what, what I could find was it was likely some sort of playing, kind of like playing of a symphony, whatever the, in, the ancient instruments was, was at that time. So if you think about now, if we might go to an opera, you know, you go to hear some very good music. Um, well, here in this great theater, whatever the musical instruments that they would you know, be into or that was being utilized, you would go to this theater for that kind of form of entertainment. Uh, so if you wondered kind of where you know, theaters or, or even stadiums where we play sports today, kind of where was that influenced by? Well, you can even go back here to the first century, and it was even going on um, at this time where there was some sort of venue for some extra, you know, extracurricular stuff such as uh, music or sports or things like that. And like the other four churches, they, there were temples erected in Sardis. Um, there was temples erected to Augustus, Tiberius, and now with some more reach, uh, recent discoveries as part of the excavation process, uh, Vesp, uh, Vespasian is also uh, believed to have a temple erected in his honor in Sardis. And how many of us are familiar? Remember Artemis? The, which city like bragged about being the great city of the great Artemis? Do you guys remember? Ephesus. Well, in Sardis, there was a temple, but it was in ruins around this time, um, and it was trying to be rebuilt at the penning of this book. So the temple that was dedicated to Artemis, as you remember in our study to the letter to Ephesus, it was, what was it, Cybele was the other goddess that it was dedicated to, and then it changed to Artemis. But there was also another temple of Artemis in Sardis, but by the time this letter was being written, it was still in ruins. Um, so Artemis was a figure that was, or a goddess also, that was acknowledged and worshipped in ancient Sardis. Uh, some other kind of background information concerning Sardis. Uh, in 17 AD, there was a destructive earthquake and it destroyed the city, and it underwent an extensive rebuild under Tiberius. And Tiberius ruled from 14 to 37 AD. Who and Tiberius provided substantial funds and pretty much made them tax-exempt uh, as part of the recovery and rebuild of Sardis. And just so you know, when Tiberius made such a grand gesture to Sardis, they erected a statue of Tiberius and they called him the founder of the city. So it's as if, you know, let's just say here in the United States, there was a natural disaster like an earthquake, wiped out a city. And then let's just say the president gave this emergency relief fund and the city in return saying, hey, you know what, we're going to build a statue for you because you're our savior and we're going to pay homage and you know, you're basically deify you. Well, that's what the ancient Sardis did when the Roman emperor Tiberius provided such aid and relief because of that earthquake that destroyed the city. And we'll do a couple of fun facts, and then we'll get to the scripture. So here's a couple of fun facts about Sardis. Number one, 
About 200 years after the writing of this book, Sardis was known for a famous synagogue which held about 1,000 and is believed to be the largest in ancient history adjacent to the gymnasium. Now, when I kind of talked about the gymnasium and I mentioned there were some sections there, and I know for some of us it's kind of hard to imagine, but as part of that gymnasium, there was public baths. Public baths. Imagine taking a bath in public. But I, do ha- I could somewhat relate because the one time I went to the Philippines when I was in sixth grade and where my family lived, we lived in the province. And when I had to take a bath, I had to go pump my water and just get whatever that bucket and, and wash myself. And I remember people watching me. I'm like, man, this is weird. Well, of course, I wouldn't be fully stripped down. And I remember I, at that time I had hair. Trust me. I shampooed my hair twice. And you know what the, the Filipino said to me? You know, the, the people there? Oh, you're rich. Because I shampooed my hair twice. <laughs> I'll never forget that as a sixth grader. But anyways, there was public baths even in ancient Sardis. And about 200 years later, that public bath was converted to a synagogue. They used it for a synagogue instead. And uh, um, what is known as, like, what is the largest synagogue, you know, pretty much in ancient history? Sardis is the one that had, that had it, that pretty much holds that title. So that's kind of one you know, little fun fact about him. Here's a second fun fact about Sardis. Um, and you can Google this. You know, what's the oldest coin in world history? It is the Lydian stator or stator. I don't know if I'm saying that right. So it's this gold coin. And there's a picture of what that, is, what that looks like. So when Sardis was, you know, was, um, was as the Lydian, the Lydian kingdom's capital, it is believed that coinage as currency began there. So kind of a little fun fact, a little, call it quiz or whatever. If you're saying, when did gold coins and silver coins, when did that start to begin, you know, printed and then circulated as currency? It would be the Lydian stator, which was under the Lydian kingdom in the capital of Sardis. So some, just kind of a little fun fact. And this is, you know, just things that I come across as I'm trying to understand, you know, some of his history, its history. So I think that's enough for us. We kind of have an idea about Sardis. You know, we look to the scripture. Now we look to history. We have some sort of idea of kind of what Sardis is about. So with that, I think we're ready to open up the text. And let's look at our reading for today. Um, it's, it's short. It's only six verses. So let's go ahead and read it, and I will read it from the NAS. And then, of course, once we read it, we will pick it up at the top. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which, are, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So let's pick this up in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And captured within this verse is, I would suggest to us, it is the overall theme of this letter. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Hence the title of the study, Alive But Dead. But let's look at verse 1 closely. So it says, To the angel. Angel is agalos, and we've learned this. All of these seven letters starts with first addressing the angel over that church. And Jesus declares to the angel that he has the seven spirits. Now I want to say this up front. You'll hear some teachings that just says seven means completeness. Or it's symbolic to mean some sort of just, yeah, completion or cycle. Before we go there, seven means seven. Seven ha- Jesus has the seven spirits and the seven stars. And as we've learned, the seven stars are the seven angels. Now let me ask us a question here. And just so you know, from this point on, I'm going to ask us some questions so that we can start to engage the material. Does the seven spirits equal the seven angels? So Jesus says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Are the seven spirits and the seven angels the same? Jeremy's nodding his head no. Anyone else? You don't think so? Very good. And I say no. Why? Because when we get to chapter 4 and the vision of the throne of God the Father, and we'll pick it up in verse 5. Here was the scene. Out from the throne, and this is the throne of God the Father, comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, there was four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So in this passage, the seven lamps that were burning before the throne of God the Father are the seven spirits of God, are the seven spirits that Jesus has. Are you following me? So the seven angels or the seven stars in Jesus' right hand is not the seven lamps of the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. And I really think that a lot of times um, we might oversimplify Scripture and, and just think, well, there's a lot of sevens and you're calling them these different things, but they're called different things for different reasons because they have different also responsibilities as we will see. So I want to tell us a spoiler, and from the time to time, I'm going to tell you up front, and when we get there, we will talk about it more at length. The seven spirits of God, or the seven lamps that are burning before God the Father's throne, the one that Jesus has under his authority, they're the seven angels who will be given the seven trumpets after Jesus breaks the seventh seal. You follow me? The seven spirits of God that Jesus has That is, Jesus is declaring to the angel of Sardis. He's saying, those seven spirits of God or seven lamps that are burning before the throne of God the Father, 
they will be given seven trumpets. And the seven trumpet judgments are very serious. So these angels, these seven spirits of God, or seven lamps burning before the throne of God the Father, they are given the task and the responsibility to blow these trumpets. And I tried to capture kind of a picture here when those seven trumpets you know, are going to be blown, but one by one. And we will look into what is going to happen when those trumpets are blown by these angels. It's not going to be pretty. Here's my case in point. In verse 1 alone, there are seven stars or seven angels and also seven spirits of God. Right there, Jesus has 14 different angels under his authority. But as we know and as we've learned, all authority in heaven and on earth by this time has been given to the glorified Son of Man. But just in verse 1 alone, there's already 14 different angels that are under the authority of Christ. So now let's look at the last half of verse 1. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And I know is the familiar Greek word oida. And Jeremy, I actually like when you say the Lord knows. (laughs) That's a good catch-all. Because in chapter 1, remember, Jesus was already standing amongst the seven uh, golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. So by the time these letters are written, Jesus knows. And he's already evaluated them. And he's already assessed them. And part of that assessment is he says, I know your deeds. And a a good way for us to kind of understand when he says, I know your deeds, you can also think works or behavior. Deeds is what you do. Deeds is what you do, whether it's in work or how you behave or respond. Those are your deeds. And name is the familiar anoma, which we've covered. And depending on context, it could mean your actual name, but it can also be attributed to authority or cause. So the context is going to tell us when it says, I know your, your deeds, that you have a name or an anoma. The context will tell us whether it's talking about just a name or if there's some sort of authority or a cause implication. And alive is the verb zao, and it means to live. So here in context, the church in Sardis They had some level of influence and reputation of being alive among the dead or ruins. So remember when we were kind of going through our historical backgrounds and I mentioned that Sardis experienced a great earthquake that devastated the city in 17 AD. And since that time, so by the time we get here, we're looking at about 80 years. They may have had a reputation of being alive among the dead or ruins that remained So that was a pretty devastating earthquake, and it could very well be that there was still rubble that haven't been, you know, Sardis wasn't fully restored to, quote-unquote, its glory than before the earthquake. So what we were learning is, you know, when Jesus are picking certain kind of descriptions, whether it's of himself or of of the city or town, he could very well be taking into account kind of their situation. So could, I guess if you can kind of imagine, let's just say Sardis, it's gone kind of through this rebuild for over 80 years. You know, part of the recovery is there, but then there's also still a lot of rubble and, and unrestored places. So that's why they're kind of like, they're alive among the dead or the living, that they have this kind of name or reputation. 
of being alive. And Jesus is fully aware of such things. But he says this. He goes, you are dead. You are. Present tense. Dead is necros. And it means corpse. You're a dead corpse. Presently. Here's a question. Remember, I'm going to start asking us a question. Can one be described as dead and still be saved? Why or why not? And support it with Scripture. He goes, I know you have a name and a reputation of being alive. But he goes, you are a dead corpse. No. And I'm going to let Paul take this one. No. We're familiar with Ephesians 2. And you were dead. Past tense. You were dead. You were a dead corpse in your trespasses and sin. Before. In which you formerly walked. Past tense. Not presently. According to the course of the world, this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which which he loved us, even when we were dead, not are dead, in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, and we're studying what those ages to come will eventually be, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no, man, no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, just by that passage alone, if you're described as dead, that's an indication that you're not saved. You're not redeemed. You have not been given life. You haven't been grafted back in. So, there were some among the church in Sardis who were part of the assembly. They had a reputation of being alive. But if we were to look at the reverse of Ephesians 2, which we just read, we can deduce there was, there was some in Sardis, or you could say most in Sardis, they're still in dead in trespasses and sins. They're still continuing to walk according to the course of this world. They are still walking and living according to the spirit of Satan who is at work in the sons of disobedience. There were some among the church in Sardis. They continued to live in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and mind, and being dead, they remain children of wrath, even as the rest. That's why he says you are dead. So I'm submitting to us, no. Those he's addressing here, although they're part of the church or the assembly in Sardis, they were dead. They weren't saved. Remember I mentioned earlier in kind of the introductory comments, if we have this idea that the judgment and warning is only to those outside the church, look no further than only here. There are those in Sardis that Jesus, when he evaluated them, he says, but you are dead. Regardless of what your name or reputation might be like to your community around you. And right now I'm resisting from spiritualizing that and applying it to truths, uh, to churches, whether it be today or throughout history. I'm going to resist that for now because I want to stay to the context and I believe that the Scripture will speak to us in those areas if need be. But for now, let's stick 
to the context, and then we will see where it goes beyond them. And in mercy, Jesus admonishes them in verse 2. He says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. And when he says, Wake up, it's Gregorio. And it means to be watchful or to be alert. When he says, Wake up, be watchful, be alert. And he says, strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen is therizo. And it means firmly establish. And he says, the things that remain. I'm going to ask us. He says, wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. Whatever those things are that he's talking about, Jesus are saying those things are about to die. He's saying, wake up, be alert, firmly establish something because the things that remain were about to die. So I want to ask us a question. What are those things that are about to die? That he is exhorting them to wake up and be alert and watch. Very good. Good deeds. Because that's in the context. So those things that remain, but it's more specifically, it's uncompleted deeds uncompleted deeds. The things that remain are unfinished deeds or their behavior because Jesus said at the end of this verse, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So he's saying to, these, to the church in Sardis, he's like, I have deeds for you. Whether it's works, whether it's you know, working in the ministry, whether it's your behavior as a professed child of God, And he says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And that hits a truth, I think, for many of us. Did you ever think that you can fall short of the deeds or works that God has set before us? That God has in mind, child, son, daughter, I have this work for you that I planned before the world began. And there's a possibility that we don't follow through with that. Because whatever those unfinished things were to the church in Sardis were about to die, and we said, and we've con- connected that to being uncompleted deeds. And here's a coincidence because we went to Ephesians 2. Remember, I just referenced this. It speaks on this very thought. He says in verse 10, in Ephesians 2:10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we might assume if God prepared it for us, then it'll get done. Well, Jesus is warning these believers in Sardis that they're about to die. And the deeds that were planned before the foundation of the world not be completed on your end. So although the church in Sardis had some level of authority or influence, the good work set before them is about to die and go unfinished because of sin. And it's because of this, Jesus reminds them in verse 3, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. And remember in the Greek is what we know remember is in the English. When you remember something, you have to call to mind, you have to bear in mind Here's the part. When you try to remember something, you know what you're doing? You're exercising your memory. 
when he says, so remember what you have received and heard, he's saying, exercise your memory of what you have received and heard. So in order for their deeds to not go unfinished and die, they were exhorted to remember, bear in mind, exercise their memory on what they have received and heard. No one asked us the question, what have they received and heard? The gospel. And I'll allow Paul and John to answer this. So received and heard in Philippians 4.9, Paul, um, Paul writes there, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So what did the Philippians receive in here from the Apostle Paul? You said it. The gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes there, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So what did the Thessalonians receive and hear? It's, it's in the context. The word of God. So we have the gospel. We have the word of God. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what did John see, hear, touch? Jesus Himself. And He is sharing that to the church so that we may have fellowship also with the Son of God who was from the Father. So in the beginning of verse 3, Jesus is commanding them to repent and remember the gospel they received, and in the word of God by which they stand, proclaimed to them by God's holy apostles. So here's some kind of truth that we're, 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 we're coming across. Part of repenting, you know, when, when if someone is dead in sin or are about to die, I guess you can say, because of sin inside, how do you repent? It's to bring to remembrance what we have been taught. Remember what we have learned. The truths when it was like brand new to us. Remember those things. Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And that He is the only Savior of the world. And that by repentance and faith in Him, He in turn will grant us forgiveness and eternal life. Remember those things. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to bring to life that which was dead. So here's the application. This is where it gets really practical. And I'm sure many of us have been here. We have seasons in our Christianity. Have you or are you in a spiritual sleep or slumber? Just the things of Christ just aren't as exciting, as exhilarating, as satisfying as it was in the beginning. Are you in a spiritual rut? Or have you ever been in a spiritual rut? And uh, some of us may, may relate to this. Do you sometimes or even currently not feel too great of a Christian? If any of these you know, seasons we find ourselves in, then what's instructive for us in verse 3 is remember what you know and learned about God. 
the gospel and the word of God and then act on that memory in repentance and devotion to our Lord. It's really like that. If you're feeling down and out or you went sideways, you took your eyes off the prize which is Christ, remember, exercise your mind what was communicated in the gospel? What was the truth that I received at one point or that I embraced at one point? Go back there. Go back to your Bible. Go back to praying. Go back to repenting and devoting yourself to your Savior. Guess what? You're not going to be in a spiritual rut that much longer. So it's very instructive for us. Verse 3. And what, what I'll do here, because... This picks up a new thought, which could be a study in and of itself. Um, but we'll end here. And I actually, I'm looking forward to this part of the, the verse because there's a lot of confusion when it says Jesus, when he compares himself as coming like a thief. That has been so butchered, so twisted, so speculated that it's, for the, it's pretty much introduced heresy in, the, in that it's not supported by Scripture. So we're going to spend some time and we're going to see, wow, he used this description of him coming at night that no one knows for a very specific reason. And when we follow how you know, God's plan and not only redemption, but ultimately his return unfolds, we will see when this, I'm telling you right now, it's prophecy, when that will manifest, materialize, and be fulfilled. And I trust that it'll probably be something that we haven't maybe encountered or heard, at least not, not that much. So we'll, we'll leave it here, and we'll pick it up in the last half of verse 3. Thank you so much for listening today to Truth Matters Church. As Pastor Alex just mentioned, next week we'll study a commonly misinterpreted and misapplied statement from Christ that he will come like a thief in the night. Using scripture with scripture and not applying our own preconceived ideas to the interpretation, we'll find that God's word is surprisingly clear on what Jesus meant when he said this. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them at our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.